From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Tupac was somebody that presented you with all his sins, if we're going to use you know that language, and said, you know, here, deal with it. Like, let's let's be human together. You know, no one is that holy that they don't have stuff under the covers. That no one is so sanctified that they can't be real. And I think that's part of what Tupac has helped me realize. And just being able to be comfortable with who I am. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University in Chicago, Illinois. His research interests are the intersections of faith, hip-hop culture, race and ethnicity, and young adult emerging generations. His latest publications are Hip-Hop's Hostile Gospel, A Post-Soul Theological Exploration, and Homeland Insecurity, A Hip-Hop Missiology for the Post-Civil Rights Context. Daniel White Hodge, you've been on our show before i'm always glad to talk to you welcome back to things not seen well thank you david i appreciate it brother it's good to be back on and and thank you for having me well today we're going to be talking about a recent publication of yours called baptized in dirty water reimagining the gospel according to tupac amaru shakur and before we get into the content of that book which i think is just excellent and it blew my mind in some places and i'm really looking forward to talking to you about it i want to talk to you about the series that this book appears in and the series is a new imprint from cascade books called popology and you're on the editorial board of this popology imprint tell us a little bit about what it's designed to do for the reader. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thanks for asking that question as well. The series was, we framed it around the idea and notion of being able to get to theological ideas within popular culture rather quickly, rather than having a a book, a theological book, as you I'm sure already know, you know, you can spend 200 pages only to get to the 201st page of the, the, the author to be like, no, that's not really what I wanted to say. And let me go on to this and stuff. So we wanted something that people could access, people could read, but still have the weight of, you know, scholarly research. And so we wanted to have and, and we wanted to focus it around, you know, people like Tupac, Bono, looking at aspects of, of icons in our culture that represent something much bigger than just their music and so i was the minute i heard it i was like oh my gosh i i gotta get on this and and do tupac and so the series is is just started um officially i think this is i'm 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 like the second book we got many more in the pipeline coming in and the other thing is is that it's affordability i mean it's that there these books are you're able to access them in a way that you know you just a lot of people you know you don't have to spend the nine hundred dollars or whatever for a whole almanac or a library theological library 
and you've definitely written about Tupac before, and when you've been on the show before, we I remember we spent a segment kind of digging into kind of what you were doing in your earlier books, Hip Hop's Hostile Gospel and Homeland Insecurity. And so before we get into kind of what it is that keeps bringing you back to Tupac, when we're talking about this series, Popology, I think some might want to dismiss the idea of focusing on someone like Bono or someone like Radiohead, or someone like Tupac Shakur, uh, there, there's a certain brand of listener who's going to say, oh, well, that's just worldly stuff, and you're, you're watering down the gospel, you're watering down the message of Christ. With this worldliness, we're supposed to turn away from worldly, worldliness. So as a person on the editorial board of this Popology imprint, what's the advantage for you all of turning toward the worldliness? What does it gain for us that that other approach doesn't? I mean, I think it's something that, what is it, Larry Kreitzer talked about, you know, reversing the hermeneutical flow, right? It's like, you know, let us begin to look at where God shows up. And some of these non-sacred, or at least with what people have defined as non-sacred spaces, where does God, particularly when you look at the story of Jesus, right? Jesus didn't just hang out in the synagogue. He didn't just hang out in these religious spaces, right? It's like Jesus was, you know, he went into savory spots, right? It's like he would go into places that you're like, oh, man, that even the disciples, right, are just like, ah, Jesus, I don't know about that, man. Um, And so for us as a team, we wanted to say, where does that show up in popular culture? And oh, and guess what? Yes, there are aspects of that that people represent. And even though there might be a four-letter word in there, again, I think it's important to note that as somebody who studies rhetoric and, and communication and discourse and all that, it's like not every four-letter word is actually a curse word. So how do we then move beyond what seems to be in plain sight, like you said, worldly, they're out there doing this, and, and how do we push past and and begin to look at like what John Michael Spencer talks about? It's like, you know, the sacred, the profane, and really the secular and how all those things come together and God showing up in those myths. And so for us, it was a matter of, of turning to popular culture because those become our literary canons and stuff. I'm working on an edited volume right now with my good friend Jennifer Baldwin on the Marvel Universe and looking at where religion shows up. And, you know, one of the essays I'm working on now is looking at how, you know, the God of the Old Testament really is kind of almost a Thanos, right? It's like, you know, looking at that and like, you know, being able to crack that and be able to kind of nuance that just gives us a better understanding of what the sacredness in the scriptures is speaking to in the secular and the profane. Well, and when you're talking about this edited volume on the Marvel Universe, is that going to be in the Popology imprint, or is that for a different a different publisher? That is for a different publisher. We we did sign up with uh, Lexington with that one, and so that one will uh, hopefully be out. Uh, well, with the pandemic and everything, oh, we were the manuscript was due here in about another month and a half, but more than likely it'll probably be a beginning of next year. And so in the popology imprint that we've been talking about, I recognize that COVID and the pandemic has slowed everything down. Are there other titles in the pipeline that we can be looking forward to, or is that kind of slow going at this point? No, no, I mean, there's there's other things that are being worked on. I'm, I know there was some stuff on, like you said, Radiohead. There was some, definitely some stuff on Ozzy Osbourne as well and, you know, bluesy folksy type stuff that I'm excited to get into and learn and learn more about. Well, if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and our guest today, returning to the show he's been on before, is Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University in Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. 
So let's now turn to Tupac Shakur. Those who are familiar with Tupac Shakur, we're not going to be telling them anything that they don't already know in this conversation. And those that are unfamiliar with Tupac Shakur, we may be telling them some things that they don't want to hear. And so that's our our warning to the listener at the outset. But let's situate this. And you actually take an entire chapter to put uh, Tupac Shakur sort of into a socioeconomic, sociological context. But briefly, for listeners who may be unfamiliar, let's situate Tupac Shakur. Who was he and what was his context? Absolutely. Well, Tupac Shakur was a rapper. Uh, He was uh, really around during what most scholars would agree was the golden age of hip hop, usually between and varies, but usually between 1987 to about 1997. And he represented (sighs) hip hop was still in its infancy. And so there was a rawness that was was being spoken of and he really represented was the head of that and he was connected in many different ways he understood the east coast because that's where he was born he was actually born in baltimore a lot of people think that he was just a solely west coast guy but he wasn't he was actually born on the east coast and moved his mom moved him to oakland and in the bay area and whatnot and that's where he got his main start but tupac was a, a really a soft heart once i started digging into his actual the stuff that he was writing, the stuff that he connected with, home videos, when I was interviewing, because for your listeners, I did my dissertation on Tupac and just looking at him and really digging in and you know taking apart this, this man's life, he wasn't what the media made it out to be. And I will be the first to confess, when he was alive, I was quite into my fundamentalist years as a youth pastor in California, in the Bay Area, to to, uh, to nonetheless. And so I remember kids coming to me at that time being like, man, you really got to listen to this. You really got to listen to it. He's talking about stuff that we are experiencing. And again, it was easy for me to dismiss because on the front side, it was, well, but he's, you know, having videos with porn stars and man, his his albums have explicit lyrics on it and whatnot. But once I was able to kind of nuance that and have my own experience of the sacred, secular and profane, then I was able to really better listen to Tupac with new new ears and just really embrace what he was trying to say, because he was not what the media made him out to be. He was a soft hearted tender kid. I mean, this guy went to the Baltimore School of Performing Arts, right? I mean, he was with people like Jasmine Guy and Will Smith's uh, why Jada Pinkett Smith. You know, they were real good friends. And in fact, that's where they met at that school. So it's like he represented something. It was is as Michael Eric Dyson says, he was two sides of the coin, right? It's like, you know, on the one side, you got the soft, but on the other side is you've got the disparity the hopelessness, the the, uh, the nihilism, if you will, that exists within particularly young, black, urban, if you will, communities. That is, in, in a nutshell, just kind of how Tupac was around. He died, unfortunately, in, in, on September 13th, 1996. Just to answer the question, in case anyone's listening, I don't think he's still alive. I get that all the time. People are like, man, you think he's still alive? Like... Nah, I think I think he's I think he's dead. I think he's dead. <laughs> um, I don't think you know with somebody of his nature. I don't, he there's no way he could be silent this long, especially with what's happening in our world right now. But every now and then, you know, I just the other day I saw a, a post come up on my my feed that said he was alive in the Philippines and he was a, a colonel in the Philippine army. So <laughs> I was like, well, all right. 
Well, you, you said something a moment ago. You said that, that Tupac was active in the golden age of hip-hop. In your book, Baptized in Dirty Water, you define hip-hop as arising in a post-soul context. And so before we go to break, line out for us what you mean when you use this phrase, the post-soul context. Absolutely. So I'm borrowing, you know, this and kind of nuancing it from folks like George Nelson who talk about the post-soul in much the same way people talk about postmodernism, postmodernism theory and, and ideology, while great and curious and all those great things, doesn't really include the experience of persons of color. And so the post-soul gathers that. And so what it essentially is, it's looking at the soul generation, which was really boomers, if you will, who were able to create the music of the 60s and of the 70s and create the culture of that. These folks were much more connected to families, much more connected to a strain of history prior to popular culture and really the, the breaking down of the black family really through Reaganomics and what was happening in the crack generation during the 80s. So George Nelson and, and, and others, Mark Anthony Neal and whatnot, have, have talked about just how the post-soul really is that generation that was born after the soul generation. They were born in the ruins. As Tupac would say it, the soul generation was BC before crack, you know, and it's like the, the, the generation after was the crack generation, you know, and then full on and so on and whatnot. And so that's essentially, you know, the nitty gritty and the low down of it. I mean, I've, I've explained this in, in other works of mine. And so if you're listening, you can feel free to, you know, dig into some of those areas where I kind of go in much deeper than what I'm explaining now, but essentially the, the, the shift that happened, particularly in the African-American community. And I would also say, say, uh, Latinx community between 1968 and about 1978 and the rise and emergence of popular culture. When you think about MTV coming online in the early 80s and then kind of the rise of that. And of course, you have all the information with that, right? Latchkey Kids, Generation X. You know, Generation X is really the first hip hop generation. And we consequently, subsequently have had, you know, four generations after that. So that's essentially, again, as I, I can break that down, is, is looking at that subset of generations that has grown up after the soul generation has grown up in the in the womb of media society so let me just make sure that i'm tracking this correctly and if this parallel is off base please do correct me so in in the wake of patriarchy or not in the wake of but in response to patriarchy we had feminism but feminism was largely a white phenomenon and then in response to white feminism we had womanism okay and so and in in response to modernism we had postmodernism, but postmodernism is largely a white phenomenon, as you've mentioned. And so am I correct in, in imagining that womanism is to feminism as the post-soul is to postmodernism in one oh, sense? Oh, you got it. That's great. I love it. Okay. Love okay. It. Well, th then hopefully that was clarifying not only for me, but for some listeners. But let's go ahead and, and go to break. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're happy to welcome back Daniel White Hodge to our program. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University here in Chicago, Illinois. We're talking about his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. 
Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University in Chicago, Illinois. We're discussing his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. In our last segment, we we began to situate Tupac Shakur in his time and place, in his context. And we talked about the kind of dual, the dual images of Tupac Shakur. We talked about the fact that he presented in the media as kind of a hardened thug, but then you said there was another side to him, and in fact he was both sides of the same coin, as you said, that he also had a softness and a sweetness and a tenderness that was evident in some of his non-rap writing, some of his poetry, but also in the reporting of people that knew him during his brief life. Okay, so now let's begin to dig into both that hardness and that softness, because that really plays out in the chapter in your book, Baptized in Dirty Water, where you deal with the Tupacization of the gospel. And I think, I think some people are going to be kind of interested in the, in the fact that you're bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ and Tupac Shakur together. So first of all, in a, in a couple of broad strokes, why do you think that a person who has been presented as a criminal and a thug can be a good bridge to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm using bridge very particularly because you talk about him. He, he described himself as a bridge. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, that's a great question. I think he said that in a lot of different interviews. I think the one that stands out the most is the one with Ed Gordon. If any of your listeners are accessible to YouTube, you can just look up Tupac interview with Ed Gordon. You get the long version. It's like a 40-minute one. And, I mean, you just got to listen to that because he really goes into the notion that he didn't see himself. Now, some people named him as a divinity, a divinity figure, but he would always, you know, be like, like look, I'm, I'm not God. I'm, I'm, but, but the same way a pastor is trying to help somebody figure out the way it's like that he saw himself as that bridge. And so I think for me, I mean, it's summed up, I think, in just the life of Jesus. I mean, I think about Jesus, if Jesus were around today, right? We've had all these analogies and whatnot. I mean, I think he'd be hated. He'd be looked at as like, there's no way this cat can be the son of God. There's no way this cat can be a sacred being. I mean, look who he hangs out with. Look who he's chosen his disciples. Look who's, look how he talks. And I think that was, for me, it was, it was a good parallel in my own just, development, if you will, spirituality, spiritually, when I was looking at Tupac, because I was able to parallel that with Jesus's life. And there's just so many overlaps looking at Jesus, the way he talked, the way the language that he used, um, you know, and even the way he would use discourse. I mean, if you read like, you know, particularly in Matthew and whatnot, and you see the genealogy of where Jesus came from, it's like, oh my gosh, this guy wasn't supposed to come from anything. And Here's Tupac, right? Same way. It's like people looked at him. I can only imagine if a camera was on Jesus back 2000 years ago, we would have seen a completely different narrative spun out that all oh, this guy is inciting riots. He's, you know, he went. Can you believe he went into the church and he was violent? I mean, how can this man be the son of God? Like, you know, we have to have peace on earth. And how can this person be talking about love your neighbor? And he's over there whipping people in the, you know, in the temple. Right. And so this is the same thing. Right. Because it's like, again, in my fundamental years, I would see the clips of Tupac spinning at the camera and him talking about how he's a thug, never understanding that thug stood for the hate you give little infants F's everybody. Right. And so 
again, it's easy to, to miss those things. And particularly you add on race as a black man that's tatted. Eric Iverstein writes a great narrative. I'm looking at the black body and narrating that. Of course, my good friend and, and colleague Monica Miller talks a lot about that as well, you know, reading the black body. So this is something I think that is long and coming and looking at the parallels between people like Tupac and Jesus, because there are a lot of parallels. And I think part of what has happened is that mainstream conservative evangelicalism is infiltrated so deeply into the imagination of what Christianity is, is that people don't see any difference in or variation in Christianity is that this is Christianity. This is it. But when you begin to look at the richness and the, the cultural milieu of what Christianity is and the faith, the hero, of the faith and the and the women and the hero heroines of the faith you'll see that it's much more richer than just a fundamental conservative evangelical view which i'm not necessarily saying is wrong i'm just simply saying that it is not the only picture of christianity well what's interesting in your answer and i'm not sure if this was in the ed gordon interview that you mentioned or in a different interview but in your chapter the tupacian theological gospel you reference a point where tupac name checks Jesse Jackson and says, listen, Jesse Jackson is going and talking to the middle class and he's having dinner in the White House. So that's where his ministry is. My ministry is in the projects. I'm speaking to my people. He's speaking to his people. But already in that, there's an awareness that the African-American voice is not speaking with one voice and that the African-American voice has to reflect the context of socioeconomic reality. But let me ask you then, let me dig deeper. Does that mean that Jesse Jackson in some way is an adversary to Tupac or an ally in this conversation? That's a great question. I think I've wrestled with that for a long time is just my own understanding, right, of what does it mean to be black? Um, I think there's a lot of different shades. I think part of what you're talking about is the push away from singularized leadership that doesn't exist anymore within any community, especially anybody born after the year 2000, right? That's this idea and notion that one person speaks for all. No, that's not the case, right? And it's like, you can look at the black lives matter movement. There is not one single solitary. And this is what drives the media nuts, right? It's like, well, tell us what y'all want, but this people over here in Birmingham, were saying this and people over here in DC are saying this. It's like, no, hold up. There's, they're all valid, right? As opposed to having a Martin Luther King or a Malcolm X or, a, you know, these, these inspiring figures that existed during a particular time that literally did because TV was such a new medium at that time, 50s and 60s, that it existed as that point of like, okay, let me channel that to here. But because we have so many platforms as we are being aware of, made aware of with what we're doing right now, right? To, to speak and to have a voice, singularized leadership in the black community has been pushed away. So no, I wouldn't say he's adversarial now. I think at the time, because you think about it back when Jesse Jackson was running for president, Melly Mel and the Furious Five, they all came together and put a whole rap song together to help Jesse get elected, right? And Jesse just you just just flat out just rejected. So I don't think there was an understanding at that point of what the hip hop community could really do and the power that was nestled in that. So I wouldn't necessarily see him as adversarial. I would definitely say we're probably not going to agree on everything. And you know, not the name drop, but just these are some of the conversations I've had with him in regards to hip hop in regards to just this generation because you got to remember i mean jesse shows up to just about everything man i mean the brothers he's been involved i mean and so i can't knock the hustle uh and he's been around for a long time so i don't want to disrespect on that end 
But that's at the same time, I mean, like that's the beauty of this generation. They're going to be like, but that doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. And that, and you know, not everyone is super woke, right? So I would say he's not completely against, but I, I think he's definitely misunderstood on both sides, hip hop and Jesse himself. So what I'm hearing you saying is that at the time, there may have been a perception of adversity, but that over time that has softened and that now we don't have Tupac's perspective, but now Jesse might consider voices like Tupac and Melly Mel to be ally voices in a way that he might have not known how to incorporate those voices before. Have I heard that correctly? Yes, yes. And you're also seeing just some of the differences in generations, right? I mean, the generation that, uh, you know, Jesse comes from is the soul generation. And there was a different ideological structure to how you go about change, how you go about civil rights and what those things look like. And a large part of that, right, was getting to the power seats, which was the presidency, right? That's what Martin did. I mean, he went and was talking with Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? And, and so Jesse still holds that where I would say this generation is blue bit more different like sure they want to get to the power seat but they're much more about disrupting that it's like Tupac even said it is like man we've been asking for years we were asking with the the civil rights movement we were asking with those people now all those people are either dead or in jail right and it's like you got my generation what do you think we're going to do just ask and then he was that was an interview with you know Tabitha Soren back in 1994 I mean you can only imagine right about what's you know when you see Ahmaud Arbery being killed when you see these folks and you see you know, Mike Brown. I mean, the list goes on, right? Of the, You just pick the, the black person who's being killed, you know, this week. And then there's no justice being served. Philando Castile, right? It's like, they're not asking anymore. So people aren't trying to shoot for the White House. And wh- who would want to? I mean, I think that's part of the, the part of the movement is like, we're not trying to, you know, go up and have a conversation with Trump. We could barely have a conversation with Obama and quote unquote, he was the first black president. We're going to be much less invited to, you know, a place like that. So again, that's speaking to some of the generational divide that exists uh, right now as well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University in Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. So we've been talking about... Tupac Shakur's place in hip-hop, but we should also take a moment and talk about hip-hop itself, because hip-hop was outsider culture, marginal culture, when it began, but now it would be hard to not find a more central aspect, not just of American culture, but global culture yes, than hip-hop. Yes. It, has, it, has, it has affected and changed popular culture in every aspect, from filmmaking to music to to poetry and spoken word and to the visual arts. And so what has that shift done for the kinds of conversations that we're having right now? You have mentioned before that when you had talked about being a hip-hop scholar or a scholar of hip-hop, people would laugh at you in elevators at conventions, or they would say, oh, are you still doing that stuff, thinking that it was somehow fringe? (laughs) So for listeners who may still misregard hip-hop as a fringe cultural element, give us a few few examples of the ways in which hip-hop is now central to world discussions. Oh, my gosh. Another great question, David. You know, I would say this. I would say that this actually came up in class. I I teach a course on hip hop culture and theology, usually in the fall. And, uh, you know, when I was laying out the definition of hip hop and how it speaks to power and truth to power systems of power, you know, a, a young student was just like, hey, but hasn't hip hop become the the power structure? Right. It's like hasn't hip hop now? It's not. 
you know, it's, it's not what it once was. It wasn't what hip hop was in 1985, you know, or 1986 when N.W.A. is coming out, right? With F the Police, it's like, like, yeah, I mean, what what is that? So I mean, that's a great question to hold intention because I think that's part of what a lot of folks who are in hip hop are asking. I know KRS One has been asking that a long time, right? And like, when you think about what constitutes hip hop now, there's different. There's different uh, schools of thought on that. One says, okay, well, mumble rap. We have to include that because that's a part of the art form. We have to include aspects of trap music, which I like trap music. There's nothing wrong with trap music, but we have to include these aspects of it, right? A friend of mine has a T-shirt that says, you know, I'm a I'm a 90s hip-hop kid living in a, tra- in a trap world, right? And so, yes, art expands. We know that it develops. It gets bigger, and I think... And just in music production, I mean, I, you know, when I came back to audio, I left in the 90s or the late 90s, you know, when tape and reel-to-reel and ADATs, you know, for those of you know, the digital audio tape was still a thing, right? And come to find out, it's like, well, no, yeah, you know, you can upload this stuff right now. You can even master your stuff with, with AI. You don't even need all the, the analog gear that you needed. So just the fact that somebody with an iPad can record an entire track in their bedroom without a multi-million dollar studio speaks to all the good, the bad, and the ugly, if you will, that exists within hip hop right now. And I think that is something that's not going to be answered anytime soon. It is a global phenomenon, which in a lot of regards, no one who was in the Bronx at that time could really envision, right? I mean, it's, it's much like akin to somebody who's enslaved in the 16, 1700s. I don't think they could imagine where African-Americans would achieve and what they've achieved, you know, you know, they, it, looking at now, even though we're still, you know, light years behind the curve and whatnot, it's not 1705, right? And so I think that's what's being trying to be worked out right now. And, and you have people like... Kendrick Lamar and, you know, J. Cole and whatnot, who are representing a different feel to that. And at the same time, you know, folks are still trying to nuance that and trying to figure out what exactly what that means for hip hop in a space where it sells everything, toothpaste, cars, pants, masks, everything. And it's very easy also to, you know, online, I, you know, I do a lot of music myself, and I'm looking at all these producer bundles and sample packs. And I'm amazed at, you know, the things that say authentic hip hop. And you look at the producer and the producer is this 20 something white kid in the suburbs making the music. And I'm like, authentic, huh? I mean, how do you even know what break beats are? Like, do you even know where those come from? And like, you know, so all those things, right, it's very easy to be mistook as the, the, the expert. So it's just like it's a challenge. But at the same time, I'm glad. And I don't know. It's a, it's a weird feeling. So I want to build on that answer because I think you've just given us something that can we can really go deeper. You mentioned this movement where hip-hop was outside the culture, critiquing power within the culture, and then you mentioned your students saying that it is now kind of the voice of power in some ways in our culture. Can we see a parallel there to the movement of Christianity itself, oh. being outside the culture <laughs> and then coming in and now being the voice of power culture? And even to the extent of, like, Protestantism trying to put interpretation in the hands of the individual believer against the the institutional power, that's like your kid with the laptop doing the production right there in their basement. Uh, Am I tracking something, or would you push this in a different direction? Oh, man. 
David, you on it, brother. That's why you are who you are, man. You the you the man, brother. You the man. <laughs> yes, you got it. Yeah, brother. You this is great. It's great to be interviewed by great interviewers. Um, and capture things like you do. That is a gift. <laughs> um, uh, yes, absolutely. That I would. That was a great parallel because you're right, right? It's like Christianity looked at as a cult. For years and in, I mean, again, I'm sure those people who were first starting out who couldn't imagine almost 2,000 years later that, you know, we're having church online, you know, and let's bust out the guitar and, you know, and the keyboard and we're going to do these things and it's just part of mainstream culture and everything. Let's light another candle. You're absolutely right, which I think speaks to right and i mean it's like what this cat was telling me this was years ago i was looking at some of the it was some doctoral class i was looking at aspects and systems and structures of power and he said uh it's easy to lose your soul once you go big right it's in he was talking about the like organic industry like you know back in the 80s it was kind of all these kind of nutty grammy folks who living out on the outskirts creating all this organic stuff but now walmart sells it right Target sells organic stuff. It's like, well, where's the soul when you become global and marketize and all and whatnot? Because then capitalism kicks in, right? It's like, well, we got to make money, you know? <laughs> and so this exactly where hip hop is at right now. That's a great characterization and a great parallel again with Christianity because just had a conversation with a good friend of mine too. And he was just like, you know, my money comes from still conservative places. So I can't speak to that. I mean, that holds a lot of people where they're at. I'm very privileged to have tenure and be a full professor and all these things like that. But even with that, at a Christian institution, people are still like, mm, but is that Christianity? Why would you say that? How come you know this and this and that? And it's like, my gosh, but you're right. You're right. Well, and so if we take that, that there's a definite parallel between hip-hop and Christianity, then we've already begun to answer the question why it is that those who are not involved in hip-hop culture should pay attention to hip-hop as an interpretive lens for Christianity and not dismiss it. And before we go to break, let's deal with some of those objections, because I'm sure that you've heard many of them. What what are some of the key objections that people bring as to why we shouldn't use hip-hop as an interpretive lens, and how how would you answer those objections? Oh, my gosh. I think the first one is, of course, language. That comes up a lot. And somebody the other day posted on Facebook was like, you know, is it right that Christian influencers should use swear words? And, you know, somebody tagged me and I was like, look, I ain't interested in having this 2004 argument. I'm just not. I'm I've I've moved on from that. And I think that's part of it. I mean, again, study language. A lot of the language that Jesus used was considered profane in his time. People were pissed off that he was calling the Sadducees and Pharisees dogs and vipers and whatnot. Those are, you know, gentle words now, but it's like, then that was crazy. Like, look at John six, right? I talk about this all the time, right? It's like, I love the gospel of John. It's one of my favorites. Cause you know, it just, it breaks down just the profanity of Jesus. Here he is telling people to drink his blood and eat his flesh. People are like, what the hell are you talking about, Jesus? This is insanity. I can't follow you anymore. My religion doesn't allow me to do this. And now you're talking about being the zombie. And it's just like, my gosh, I mean, and now of course, you know, we just got past Easter, which, of course, in the pandemic was all virtual. So it's very easy to overlook those things. And so, oh, man, yes, I think that when you start looking at some of those those aspects of language and, of course, the secularity, the secularization, of course, of society, people will use that a lot. I think the same way you can look at, you know, um, people who sell church. Right. It's like you'll get on and people will try to market their church, put flyers out, put ads out. 
that's part of that secular thing. I mean, again, if we want to go down to, you know, brass tacks, well, let's just have faith and not market anything. God will bring the flock, right? It's like, what does that look like? So we all have to dance these dances, right, of figuring out who we are. No one's 100% woke and just all that all the time. I mean, even the Pope sneaks a few bourbons every now and then. So it's like, you know, we have to begin to understand what that looks like in real time. And I think that's one of the biggest disconnects right now with particularly Christianity is that there is very little in mainstream, very real-time connection about what is happening right now, real-time, because it always just points back to Jesus, a sign literally right up the street from where I live, the sign on the front of the church says, Jesus is the answer. And I always kid with my daughter, I'm like, man, because, you know, she looks at that and just kind of like, whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, and I'd be akin to attend that church if it said, Jesus is the answer, comma, you son of a bee. And I'd be like, oh, man, all right, now we, now we're getting somewhere. Or Jesus is the answer, comma, you F, you know, F. It's like, oh, man, all right, now you got me. Now you have my attention. But it's like, Jesus is the answer. I got a flu. Jesus is the answer. Oh, I'm worried about, you know, my mental health and I'm depressed. Jesus is the answer. It's like, uh, this is the needed gritty hermeneutics that Anthony Penn talks about that I think we just can't overlook. And that's, that's the missing spot that I think hip hop fulfills in its theology. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University in Chicago, Illinois. We're talking about his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Common Wheel for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Common Wheel podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Daniel White Hodge. He's been on our program before, so you'll recognize his voice. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University here in Chicago, Illinois. We're talking about his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. So I think about this when I watch movies, and I'll occasionally watch Alfred Hitchcock films, and then I'll read criticism of Alfred Hitchcock, and they'll talk about the influence of Sigmund Freud on Alfred Hitchcock. And I'll wonder to myself, to what extent did Alfred Hitchcock sit down and think, well, I just read this thing in Freud, and now I'm going to make a movie. In the... <laughs> but but I want to I take that same idea and now apply it to what we've been talking about. So your book is looking at the ways in which Tupac Shakur 
is a lens and a bridge to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now I want to ask you, to what extent was Tupac Shakur consciously doing this? To what extent was he saying, I am aware that I am a bridge and I want to be a bridge to the gospel? To what extent is that the case? And to what extent are you coming after the fact and saying we can now read him in a way that is compatible with the gospel? Great question. I mean, I think it's both. I think there was a sense in his early years that he wasn't even trying to do that. Right. He was, in fact, early interviews of him was was him, you know, referencing what rap videos were doing akin to what uh, the media was doing with like Vietnam. He was just like, you know, the Vietnam ended because the public media saw what was happening. Right. The first time we saw a war for what it was and there was enough outcry that put pressure on the government to finally stop the war. Well, he was trying to do the same thing in his videos. Right. And he's just talking about police brutality. He's just talking about the stuff that's going on. He wasn't even in a theological realm per se he's just a young kid in the bay area trying to make some music talking about life right and it really wasn't until the mid 90s when he right around when he unfortunately you know went to prison that he was able to start making that shift and i think the light really went on in a lot of different regards a lot of stuff shifted for him when he was in prison. You hear this in interviews. You hear this in uh, his, his his poetry. You hear this in his journaling in terms of what he experienced. Because he was like, you know, and he said this over and over and over. He's like, prison kills your spirit. And so, and a lot of people didn't want him to take the deal with Suge Knight. But Suge Knight essentially said, I'm bailing you out. You know, you're looking at, and most, and most of his family members was like, look, he should have just stayed in prison those eight years, gotten out in the early 2000s, and he would have, you know, but Tupac was like, look, it's killing me. So when Suge Knight came and was like, look, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll front the money, but in return, you got to come work for me. There was a sense that, he, you know, some people even said he knew the time clock was on. Or it was just a matter of time that, you know, he was going to die. And I think from like late 94, 95 on till about his death, he was very intentional about what he was doing in regards to being that bridge and trying to connect folks. And it was one of the reasons why he recorded so much music and, you know, was just in the studio all the time because he saw that as really his space to get his message out uh, and really looked at it. Again, if you read some of the stuff, it's almost I'm, it's, it's it's almost spooky in the sense that, you know, he almost foreseen and foretelling his own death. You hear it in his music, right? He's I see death around the corner. You know, it's like, you know, is, is there heaven for a G? You know, it's like, please, Lord, forgive me for my sins, you know, and let me in. You know, here comes my soul. I mean, so he's talking about these things. And again, if you're looking at that, uh, that's in, you know, cause he's like every, every person who's done something big dies, like every black person who's talking about that, that has done something big dies in a very violent way and stuff. And so he's at this like months before his own death. So it's, I was almost just like, wow, what did he see that, you know, the, the rest of us don't see, but you'll talk to certain hip hop artists and they'll say when Pac died and then the ensuing year, unfortunately, Biggie Smalls died. There was a major shift in hip hop culture, the industry, the way people looked at things. We entered the phase that we're in now, right? This kind of strip club, partying rap, which, well, I've never been to a strip strip club, so I'm not going to vouch for it. I understand that's a a means of income for some people, but there's got to be a variety. It can't just always be the strip club and the partying aspect. And we got a lot of things that we're dealing with. And hip hop has kind of lost that sense again. Tupac talked about that. He's like, when I'm gone, you're going to see hip hop will become more about the money rather than it is about the art and the actual message. And of course, that came after he got out of prison and uh, was much more conscious about what he was doing. 
I'm fascinated by what you've just said, and I want to dig deeper into it. So you, you talked about the ways in which Tupac was leveraging visual media to make a wider public aware of the problems that were rampant and the brutality and the violence that was rampant from the system towards his community, and, and you likened it to the Vietnam War. So now let me, let me ask you, when people looked at Jesus's tactics, and Jesus said, if, if, if a Roman soldier tells you to carry his pack a mile, you go ahead and you carry it an extra mile. And if somebody hits you on one cheek, you go ahead and offer them another cheek. And if somebody says, demand your cloak, you go ahead and give them all of your clothes. One reading of that could be, hey, you're just collaborating. You're just going on with what the power wants you to do, and you're, you're a collaborator. But if I'm reading you right, then like Tupac, Jesus was taking the power structure and making it more public and saying, you see? And making it making it so that, that if you walk two miles now, now it's much more visible how the power is oppressing you. And so I, I want to make sure that I'm hearing correctly. Is that a parallel that we can make in the tactics that Jesus used with power to the tactics that Tupac was trying to use with power? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, again, and Tupac was 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 very conscious of, of this. And that's not to say prior to 94 that he wasn't conscious of what was going on. I mean, you can read any of his stuff that and, his, and, and listen to his music and whatnot. But I would say that, yes, I mean, I think he saw those things is even just going back to the quote that he talked about with Ed Gordon. He's like he saw himself as a missionary. He saw himself as doing that work in the community, in there, being being that close to to somebody and. And yes, and visualizing and seeing like, hey, this is what's going on. I mean, even when he himself was accosted and beat by police uh, in Oakland for, for quote unquote jaywalking, you know, it was like he utilized that. Like, look, these are my marks. This is what happened to me. You know, this is what's going on. Can we do something about this? Can we do, you know, can we engage with this? So absolutely. I think there's a lot of parallels there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University in Chicago, Illinois. We're talking about his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. So... I recognize that we've been talking a lot about Tupac Shakur, but there was a, a line in your book, Baptized in Dirty Water, that really jumped out to me and made me want to turn the conversation back to you at one point as well. You said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that hip-hop really gave you room to do theology and to engage in spiritual growth. And you talk about in the book how you came from a very fundamentalist background. And at one point, if you had come across a book with a title like Baptized in Dirty Water <laughs> or or the Tupacian Gospel, yeah. you would have cast it into the fire. Yes. But, but hip-hop in some way kind of changed that for you and gave you room to grow and room to change. So I'd like to spend a couple minutes exploring that with you. What did hip-hop give you as a gift to your theology? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's a great question. I love it, man. I think, you know, my good friend and uh, and, and mentor, you know, Craig Detweiler, he and I have talked a lot. And I took a class with him when I was doing my master's. And, you know, it was it was on film, it was theology of film, theology of culture and film. And that was, again, one of those momentous occasions to 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 make notes like again how do we see god showing up in films and it's like you know he had us watching stuff like memento and you know i mean stuff like that that you're just like oh my gosh you know spirited away and you're like oh wow but i was like man let's contextualize this let's bring this even further like you know again hip-hop 
And if that that coincided with a time where I was I've been excommunicated from my church, I had been pushed away and ousted for not marrying the right person, for not continuing on in the fundamentalist ways of my old community. And so my time in grad school was a really awakening time. And so hip hop was there. I began to re I began to see it again with a new re, new lens, reexamine what it really meant. And for me, it expanded my own theological imagination to see a much broader view of God rather than just seeing God one dimensionally as an angry God, always waiting for you to kind of mess up, to slap you back into line. You know, that was the image of God that uh, that I grew up with. Right. It's like kind of the. If you will, and this is no disparage against Catholics, but the nun on the Blues Brothers, you know, played by Kathleen Freeman, you know, and he was, you know, he's like, you know, where do you get the 5,000? And she was like, I'm not going to take your filthy money. And he's like, well, then I guess you're really up S Creek. And then she stools out the ruler and, you know, sits him over the head. That was the way I really saw God, you know, it's just like really just like that. It's like, well, I'll do anything that's out of line. And so hip hop began to remove that image and say, no, 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 God's much more spiritual much more of a being much more of the presence and looking at that thing but it took me again going through my own life experience and being ousted to see those things that experience helped change my life and i'm thankful that it coincided with me going back to school to to a period of learning um because i can't say i'd be here right now i think i would probably revert back to my old ways because that's what's comfortable right it's comfortable to know we all want to know. We want the answer. We want to know these things. So it's very uncomfortable to live with ambiguity and questions. It's like, well, if Adam and Eve were the first people, did their kids have sex with each other? Like, what? You know, and I remember a pastor telling me that, you know, back in the day when I was a young youth pastor, I asked the pastor, I was like, pastor, that would have meant that, you know, mamas and daddies and, and sisters and brothers are having sex with these. Well, you know, God allowed that for a time. And I was like, wait a minute. It's like, it's difficult to live with these things. I mean, even now, right. It's like people of extreme privilege are, are, are going through changes because they're told they have to stay inside and stuff. And we don't like those answers, what the future is going to bring and all this stuff. It's like, well, being black in this country, you know, you always live with an uncertainty of your future. Right. And again, hip hop helps you, not give you the answer, but it's almost like a therapeutic process to say, now we got you. You can make it. You can make it another day. And that for me is part of the gospel. The gospel isn't about these shiny little elements of ding, 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 do that. Here's these three steps thing. It isn't the Tony Robinson gospel of saying, you know, if you just empower yourself. I mean, yeah, there's some stuff of empowering, but it's a way of saying, let's get you through this day. I think it's part of why Jesus says, you know, tomorrow's not promised. Let's let's focus on the now. Be present, as my therapist would say. It's like be present in the now. And that's part of what hip hop and for me, the part of what the gospel does. So in what you just said, you talked about a kind of God that is just kind of waiting to pounce on you and waiting to waiting to watch you break a rule and punish you. When you were talking about that, that reminded me of, again, a line from Tupac where he's like, is God just a cop? Is God just waiting for me to pass through the pearly gates of heaven so that he can pounce on me and beat me like, like I know that cops do? And so what you're talking about in what hip-hop gave you is a room to shift away from, how, how do I want to say this, from, from punishment to liberation, from incarceration to freedom. Is, is, that a, is that a fair parallel that I'm hearing in what you're saying? Yes, 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 I do believe, yeah. 
And when we encounter that, uh, what I'm getting from what you're saying, but also what I'm getting from your book, Baptized in Dirty Water, is that that's a similar journey that Tupac himself made. Am I correct in making that parallel? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, and and this gets us to a question that we've we've talked about before, but I want to readdress now as we're as we're heading to the end of our conversation. It's Tupac's question: Does heaven have a ghetto? And you interpret that question, and you say absolutely yes, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. And so, for my listeners, help to expand when Tupac asks, "Does heaven have a ghetto?" and he answers yes, and you answer yes. That's going to conjure a particular image in our listeners' minds, perhaps. Reread that image for us, not towards incarceration, but towards liberation and hope. Man, I mean, you said it right. I mean, I think that's in in the simplistic way that I can break it down. It's like it's a contextualized version of what heaven looks like. We've been told heaven looks a certain way. There's this, you know, guy up there with a big white beard who's probably white. And it's like that just does not fit the image. If we're look well, just historically, and then also just it just doesn't connect. I mean, if if you've seen white as being the oppressor, and all of a sudden you're presented with this God that's white, it's like, well, mm, I don't know about that, you know. But it's like this is as Vince Bantu, you know, speaks in his new um, book, you know, a multitude. Uh, I'm forgetting the 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 title of, but he essentially he talks about the the richness of Christianity and just how it's been colonized, and I think it's 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 very easy to embrace that colonization and say that's truth. Heaven Has a Ghetto, which was the title of, of my first book, it's a way of looking at, because somebody was once told me, it's like, well, I hope heaven doesn't have a ghetto. It's like, well, oh, gosh, we escape it from us. It's like, well, it's not necessarily the ghetto in terms of poor and rundown communities, but it's a sense of finding a place. Like, can I find a place with God? Because what I have been presented as God does not fit with my worldview, with my schematics, can we find that? And I think the the answer is unequivocally yes, there is. But you're going to have to do a lot of digging out of that colonization because that's a deep hole. Uh, that is a deep place of engagement. And I think that it's something that it's very easy to be, to overlook it and to allow it, if you will, to speak in place of, again, the, the hard road of being and sitting with ambiguity and not knowing all the time this is what, you know, is going on. And I think that's part of the challenge of modern Christianity is that we want to know everything. I keep coming back to that. It's like, you know, we want to know. We want to know the answers. We want to know how to argue with non-Christians and whatnot, whereas Jesus wasn't necessarily even about all that stuff. I mean, it's like, think about, you know, who you work with. It's like 12 cats, one that did him in. So it's like... Yeah, a contextualized way of looking at God and heaven. So as we're coming to the end of our conversation, how has engaging over the years with Tupac Shakur's music, how has it deepened your walk as a Christian? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think it's been a day and night engagement, right? I mean, I think, you know, prior to understanding the you know the the unique richness of that Tupac brings I think it was you know it was very binary good and evil you know and that's it and I think Tupac was somebody that presented you with all his sins and we're going to use you know that language and said you know here deal with it like let's let's be human together you know no one is that holy that they don't have stuff under the covers that no one is so sanctified that they can't be real and I think that's part of what Tupac is helped me realize and just being able to be comfortable with who I am. I mean, that's not necessarily even to say that Tupac was completely comfortable. I mean, the, the you know, the guy was in his mid twenties when he died. I mean, you think about all the stuff that he accomplished by then. It's like, wow, how can a, 
a mid 20 something, but I really do big, big believe that, you know, Tupac was gifted. He had that insight. He had that, you know, that prophetic vision to see things that weren't there. And like he even said, he's like, God has cursed me to see the world as it should be. And that is something for me. It's like, man, and that, and that is, that's, I think that's the burden of being educated and being a person of color, right? It's like, once you get educated, it's difficult to go back and be like, all right, these simplistic little things. And Again, listening to Pac, even now, right? Still listening to his music and still listening to his stuff. I think about, you know, so many tears. I mean, I think that's such, it's a prime example of really all of us trying to find our way to heaven and trying to, make, you know, figure out what this life is really about. Like, you know, God, is there really a place for me? You know, will you really be forgiving the stuff that I have done, the stuff that only you know about? And I love that. I love that wrestling. I love that tension. And it's something that for me has made my own walk much richer and much more complex than it was 25 years ago. Well, Daniel White-Hodge, thank you so much for coming back on the show and for talking to us about your book, Baptized in Dirty Water. I learned so much from this book, and I, I've, I've said to you off of the microphone, I'm going to be using this book in some classes I teach next fall because of how powerful it was to me. And so just thank you for taking the time to write the book, but also thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, man, my, my honor, my pleasure, brother. Again, I'm, I'm thankful to, to be on the show and, and, and thank you for, for having me and, and having such a rich dialogue and, and, uh, and line of questions. This was great. We've been speaking today with Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Intercultural Communications and Department Chair of Communication Arts at North Park University here in Chicago, Illinois. His research interests are the intersections of faith, hip-hop culture, race and ethnicity, and young adult emerging generations. We've been talking about his recent book, Baptized in Dirty Water, Reimagining the Gospel According to Tupac Amaru Shakur. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.